Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Cellular life in unusual places. Just how it started and how it keeps going. From pink snow and inhospitable glaciers, the far edges of the Pacific Northwest, to the story of how life began and split off and became the complex cellular structures we know today, and what all of that has to do with Asgard and a bunch of Norse deities. Life across the universe comes in a variety of different forms. We can see it from the very, very big to the very, very small, and it's the work of taxonic biology and also phylogenetics to analyse and study the classification and identification of different species. And broadly speaking, we structure the whole of the world in uh, in a grouping system which we refer to as taxonomic rank. It starts off at life, then down through domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and eventually species. And now, of course, you know, Above life, there's also non-life, which is, you know, the the inanimate, non-living objects. But in the life category, even before we get to the animals and plants that we know of, there's another classification breakdown, that of domain. And that is a pretty interesting one. In domain, there's, broadly speaking, three categories. The eukaryotes, then as well as them, the archaea, and the bacteria. Now, between these three groups of uh, classification it covers pretty much all life and the funny part is that the eukaryotes are pretty much most of the life that you and i will recognize or see in life the archaea and the bacteria are a subcategory that are very very small and not very visible in fact they have a big impact on our life bacteria is everywhere and archaea are the things like extremophiles that live in really strange places but They aren't as visible to us in our everyday lives, but they have a huge role to play. The difference between eukaryotes and the prokaryotes, which are archaea and bacteria, basically comes down to the nucleus. In eukaryotes, the most life that you and I would recognize, there is actually a a nucleus in the center with a hard membrane wall, which protects the the nucleus and sort of sets up basically the structure of the cell. And if you think of a cell, um, everything from a single-celled organism upwards, you generally be used to that idea of that the rough shape, the squiggly lines, and then in the middle, another almost like an eyeball where the nucleus is is protected by this membrane wall and the you know the rest of the structure as we like to imagine it. In a prokaryote such as bacteria or archaea, there's no nucleus itself with a thick wall. There's in fact just you know a, a, an amorphous blob called a nucleoid structure. And the difference between an archaea and a bacteria is more to do with the type of interlinking change and mechanisms that they have that enables them to join to other compounds. Archaea have some pretty fancy different ways of being able to bond with hydrocarbons, for example. Now, the reason why we're talking all about the different taxonomic classifications and phylogenetics is to explain a fascinating new discovery published in the journal Nature. Recent research done at Uppsala University in Sweden has built on some of the great work done previously by biologist Carl Wolse in the idea around the classifications of different types in the eukaryotes in particular. And one of the big problems is that we haven't really understood how we actually managed to get these three branches. When we look at all life and all these different complications, what separated the eukaryotes from everything else? How did they end up so differently to the bacteria in the archaea with this 
protected nucleus. What was the journey? Was it uh, just an equal split amongst the three or was there some branching beforehand? And this research suggests that there's a new domain in the tree of life, so to speak, that classifies what they call the Asgardian family, named after the Norse gods, uh, which sort of starts to piece together how life actually evolved. To understand the difference between these new Asgardian cells and the ones we understood previously, the eukaryotes, we need to understand a bit more about the study into the history and development of the eukaryotes. Now, eukaryotes are very complicated cell structures. Not only do they have, obviously, the membrane protecting their nucleus, but they also are quite complex in design with lots of different types of structures inside it. And when you go back through the genetic history using phylogenetics and find early, early cells from at the very sort of base of that tree branching system, you actually see that uh, some of these early eukaryotes seem to have effectively swallowed up a bacteria cell and converted it into an energy production station inside the actual eukaryote cell. And so obviously scientists thought, well, maybe that's how the eukaryotes developed with this kind of swallowing mechanism. That's how they got the additional complexity. But if you look at the actual genes uh, inside the eukaryotes, the large collection of genes needed to build and maintain this complicated working system in the eukaryotes actually had a lot in common with the archaea. So which branch did the eukaryotes come from? They've got elements of both present in there. And that was really the stumbling block for a lot of scientists. Now, the Asgardian group actually are closely aligned to archaea. They're just another type of similar to archaea, just a bit of a different nature. So the, the study into the Asgardian group actually suggests that, well, since As, Asgardians are also a, a type branch of archaea, and all these three elements are present in eukaryotes, then maybe then eukaryotes are just a sub-branch of, of the archaea overall structure, which means that everything, any complex cell from paramecium to us, are just all part of that archaea branch, completely separate to bacteria. So where do these things come from? Well, the reason why these all have Norse names, not just because they're discovered by a Swedish university, but they've been found in really unusual places, some of the most extreme environments on Earth. And we don't actually find them directly. We actually found them just from random material left behind, or DNA, um, at various strange environments, such as hydrothermal vents, craters in Yellowstone Park, North Carolina Estuary, and some pretty far-flung Scandinavian regions. In particular, one of the reasons why they really have an Asgardian-themed name is that one of the early sample locations that was used by the researchers at Uppsala University was from a, a place called Loki's Castle, which is a field of hydrothermal vents that are about 2,300 metres below the sea, somewhere between Greenland and Norway. And so consequently, that was where they found the first similar DNA of a archaea type uh, to what we have in eukaryotes. And since then, we've also found some in North Carolina's White Oak River, which they called Thoracotea. And then they found some more in Yellowstone in a hot spring in National Park, which also became the Odin Arcotea and the Heimdall Arcotea, which is the named after the various different Asgardian gods. And as there's about 50 more different Asgardian deities, they've got room to grow. So the debate about the evolution 
of the eukaryote cells, and thus all life, still has a long way to go. But the discovery of these Asgardian archaea had found basically cells, archaea cells, which have all the tools, all the genes, all ready to go to become a complex cell like a eukaryote. Now, it hasn't quite got there yet. And it suggests that perhaps the viable pathway for the eukaryotes to develop was through these Asgardian archaea. They had all the right DNA lined up and in place to help them later, through whatever other spark, to become the eukaryotes, the complex big cell life that we have around us today. Um, so that perhaps they were the starting point. It has to be said that it's still not definitive where that difference is. The, the common ancestor the merger hypothesis, which is the idea that an archaea, uh, such as a eukaryote Asgard type of common ancestor, stole um, some alpha protobacteria from bacteria and then had that inside themselves uh, to form uh, the mitochondrion and the very early eukaryotes that we have, that kind of bacteria fusion method or swallowing, um, is also still another potential solution there. The likelihood is that perhaps it is a combination of both, which is what really these researchers are suggesting. As guardian cells, or what, or our equivalent common ancestor further back, had all the tools in place from a DNA perspective, and it still needed that uh, bacteria core to swallow and become part of it to form the eukaryotes, the complex cells with nucleuses that we know today. So we're not quite to the end of the journey, but we are a long way further ahead than we were before. And one day, we'll hopefully understand just how complex cell life managed to form, which will have great implications for understanding our own history, but also the potential for life across the universe. Life can exist in some pretty strange places, as we just learned about the archaea and the hydrothermal vents. But also, there's strange and unusual forms of life that can be pretty, but also quite confusing. For example, in the Pacific Northwest in the United States, right near the Cascade Mountain Range, the big mountain range that's sort of the rim of the Ring of Fire, there's a whole bunch of volcanic glaciers. And around these, often, what happens is we end up with something called pink or watermelon snow. And this is, looks fascinating and beautiful, but it's snow with a pink tinge or droplets or scattered through it. And it's quite confusing to understand what actually is going on with it. Now, it's actually a form of algae that grows on top of the snow and the ice in the summer and spring. Um, and in large glaciers, particularly in high alpine mountain ranges, that can go all year round. Now, some researchers from the University of Cincinnati have been looking into this algae snow. Um, because it's quite unusual that bacterial life like that can survive in such a cold environment. It's been fascinating microbiologists such as Trinity Hamilton and geobiologist Jeff Harvig from the University of Cincinnati, who are trying to approach it from two different angles, one a geologist, one an expert in biology. Generally, we know that algae converts carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into biomass, more cells, and they grow. And we see an algae bloom on the water with a greenish-bluish tinge of life on the water. Uh, it's it's quite a typical process that we understand in the oceans because it's hot enough and humid enough and generally fleck friendly enough to life that they can survive. These cells uh, play a significant role in Earth's carbon cycle. They help turn carbon dioxide into oxygen, which is one of the reasons we have complex life here today. So we owe a lot to algae. But snow is not 
as nice and a friendly a spot as as a water and a beachfront, for example. Life developing in the coldness of a glacier is very, very unusual because that should freeze any process that you would normally have. Even more confusingly, how do we end up with this algae growth deep beneath layers and layers of snow and how did the algae manage to survive so long being trapped underneath these glaciers that's even more of a confusing question the pink color actually is a beneficial thing for the algae now because it has a pinkish hue it lowers the uh, snow's albedo in other words it removes its ability to reflect light white obviously reflects things super well and pink actually means it absorbs more energy from the sun than just being plain snow which I guess helps because any little bit of extra energy counts. And also, the atmospheric presence of ammonia and nitrate, uh, similar to what found as fertilizer, actually helps uh, the, back, the algae survive. And in fact, actually, the growth of this algae can fluctuate depending on nearby industry. More farms or trees or livestock nearby, or plant growth for that matter, will actually help seed it along. So they also not only rely on the carbon cycle, but also the nitrogen cycle and a rich supply of nitrogen uh, will actually help these pink snow algae actually grow a, a lot. And the suggestion from the actual analysis of the nitrogen found in this pink snow is that it's actually coming from human-made sources rather than a biological pathway. Now, interestingly, the algae on the surface is actually interacting with a whole bunch of different bacteria and other microorganisms, and they're effectively taking up nutrients from the local bedrock and then getting them brung to the surface. So basically, they're using the carbon and the nitrogen from the atmosphere, as well as the sources of nutrients from the bedrock underneath themselves to help them get enough genetic material to survive and thrive. So this kind of fascinating study of how life manages to survive in really, really strange locations, very remote, in the middle of mountain ranges on the Pacific Rim, stratovolcanoes and glaciers. Life has managed to find a way to chug along pretty happily. And not only that, it's quite colourful too. Not just pink, but sometimes even orange, brown, purple and green, depending on the type of algae, as well as the type of UV radiation they're trying to protect themselves from. And it just goes to show that no matter where or how, sometimes life will find a way to get through. So some great work being done out of the University of Cincinnati. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. The Asgardian Archaea cells and the difference between eukaryote life and how that developed, plus the history of pink snow and how it's surviving in the most inhospitable of places. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.